0: Buenos dias, mis hermanos y hermanas, y las bendiciones de Dios. God's blessings be with you. Bienvenidos a la Iglesia de Cristo aquí en Antioquia. I want to welcome everyone this morning. You know, I can't think of a better place to be. By the way, this is the only Sunday out of 52 that if I see you nodding off, I do not plan to look in the mirror and blame me. Thank you. Years ago, I said, I'm not telling any jokes because no one laughs. But recently, you guys have done really well. Actually, the last uh, nearly three years, I've started to try to be more humorous, and it's been a real stretch for me. I want you to know that um, when I was a chaplain for 30 years, every place I went, especially when, you know, you live long enough, you're sort of in charge, but every time we'd have a new chaplain come to wherever I was, I would always want to meet them, so they would come in the office and sit down, and we would exchange pleasantries and, you know, just kind of get acquainted. We're on the same team here. I can recall meeting a fellow named Bill over in Yokota in, in Tokyo. And um, Bill had just gotten in, so he was sitting down, and I was asking, how are you, Bill? And he said, I'm fine. You know, talk with me about your faith walk and so forth. And then I said, what, what are your hobbies? He said, well, I play the violin. I said, no kidding, really? He said, yeah. In fact, I, said, I, I then asked, I said, you know, uh, are you good? And, which is always relative. It's like somebody asking, do you play golf well? Well, you know, <laughs> or play the guitar well. I thought I did and came, until I came to Nashville. Anyway, I was asking Bill, Bill, you know, are you good? He said, yeah, yeah, I was pretty good. I played in college. I played in the, in, in the university orchestra. Our school was large enough to not only have a band, but an orchestra. And he said, but I was always second chair. I played the violin. I, I, w- I did great in high school. I went as a freshman to the university. And he said, well, you know, for an 18-year-old, you really play that violin well. And he put me in the second chair. And I stayed in the second chair for four years. I was always the second chair. And I said, did it bother you? He said, at first, it really bothered me. And then he said, one day, I was walking on campus... Uh, next to the concert hall, and I heard this beautiful violin music. And I knew the piece. The piece was really challenging. But whoever was playing that piece, and I thought, he said, I thought it was a visiting musician, maybe to hold a concert. He said, it was just wonderful. He said, so I just had to sneak in. He said, I walked in the side door and on the stage was the first chair. And he said, I listened to her. I never heard her play a solo sitting next to me. She just played whatever the orchestra was playing. Wow. And then he added, from that point forward, I didn't mind sitting in the second chair because I knew who was in the first chair. And I thought, that'll preach. And I probably preached it then too, that'll preach. Why? Because we as the people of God sometimes forget that we don't live, we don't exist in some sort of hierarchical system in the body of Christ the church. The head never changes, the first chair is always Christ, never changes. Everyone else, we don't even have a second, third, fourth chair. We have the first chair only, and everyone else supports the first chair, regardless what we do. And in times of transition, and there are always transitions, not just with Patterson coming in 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 uh, May and June, but when our brother J.P., you know, Megan came last year, and what a great job they're doing as youth, as our youth leaders and uh, song leaders, and, and 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 custodial work and. No matter what we do, we don't have positions. We have callings. God calls us, and callings are seasonal. They're not forever. Our faith on this side of eternity is until we take our last breath. But our callings change. Why? Because the first chair, because Christ as the head of the church will change it. And it's just a good reminder for us to hear the music in the first chair, realizing it's not our custodial music, it's not the preacher's music, it's not the song leader's music, it's not the shepherd's music. The first chair is Jesus. And it's never changed from before the creation it's always been Jesus and for the last two millennia for the body of Christ the church Matthew 16 it's his church and if you forget that just drive by and check our sign out I'll tell you right away I love it I love the name Romans 16 16 the churches of Christ salute you why because it's the operative word is Christ And so I was thinking, I wonder if there's a good analogy in Scripture, and I think there is. In John chapter 3, we're going to read this again. I know Knox read it, but we're going to read it again. I'll read it. You can listen. I'd, I'd have you read it with me, but it's a lengthy text. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea. There he remained with them and and baptized. By the way, Jesus himself wasn't doing the baptizing. We'll learn later in the Gospels uh, it was his disciples. But he personified his disciples were doing the baptizing. John also was baptizing. This is John the Baptist, John the baptizer, John the son of Zechariah. John also was baptizing at Anah near Salim because there was much water there. And people came and were baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew. Had to be one of Jesus' followers there, perhaps. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you bore witness, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, "'No one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who is the bride, he who has the bride, that would be us, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice.' Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Wow. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Well, this is what I take from that. I take that just like my friend Bill in the first few weeks before he heard the first chair, he thought, I deserve to be the first chair. I'm good. I've always been told I played well. I've always been the first in whatever class I was in. I deserve to be in the first chair. And I think there are those who followed John the baptizer who thought you ought to be number one, who really missed the whole point. And so John takes this incredible moment To explain very intentionally and very uh, intensely, I must decrease. And if you don't get that, you've lost the whole message I've been preaching all these years. I must decrease, he must increase. Frankly, John had the charisma, I think, to be number one. In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the region, in the eyes of His disciples, John the baptizer, the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, had the charisma, had the, had the uh, vitae, had the resume and not only His presence, but He had the credentials to say, I'm number one. He was conceived by miracle. John, uh, pardon me, Luke Luke 1-7. How do we know that? Well, Luke 1-7 tells us that both his parents were advanced in years. Elizabeth and Zechariah, the priest. He was announced by Gabriel, not just any ordinary angel... We only have a couple of archangels, only two, actually, who are named in Scripture. One is Michael and Jude, and one is Gabriel. They're the only two named. Now, there are a heavenly host of all sorts of angelic forces. But apparently, God, the Holy Spirit, chose to give us the names of Gabriel And he was always the one who made all the announcements. By the way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a little bit of an aside, it's Gabriel who will come and the Lord will descend from heaven with the cry of command and the archangels call and the sound of the trumpet of God. Do you think that's anyone other than Gabriel? I mean he's not named there but in all the gospels he was always the one who brought news both good and bad news. So John the baptizer was announced by Gabriel. He while John, pardon me, while Zachariah the priest is in the is in the temple. He was a priest, and the people outside were waiting for the priest to come out, but he was in the temple offering praise to Yahweh. In the middle of this, Gabriel appeared. Read it's a beautiful text. Luke 1:13. Gabriel is there, and he said, "Zachariah, God has heard your prayers." your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John and Gabe and Zachariah doubted that i can't imagine having gabriel in front of me and me doubting but i am certainly no better no not any i can, anyway he doubted it <laughs> and here's what god spoke through the messenger through gabriel he said, Zechariah, because you have doubted this, you will not say one word. You'll be mute here, but you will not be able to speak until the event passes. Now keep in mind, he's in the middle of giving praise to God when all of this transpires. Uh, Zechariah leaves the temple, and the people knew something was up because he couldn't speak. Nine months later, the baby John, he's not named yet, is born. Eight days after his birth, Elizabeth, his mother, and Zechariah and the family take the 8 day old infant to the temple, as was their tradition, to be named and circumcised, to be consecrated for God's use. The family was asking, what do you plan to name him, Elizabeth? They knew John, uh, that, that Zechariah couldn't speak. What do you plan? And she said, his name is John. And they said, no one in your family is named John. His name should be Zechariah. And then, of course, they turned to the father. What is his name? Zechariah motions for a writing tablet. And he writes, in Hebrew, his name is John. And he showed it. And the moment that happened, his mouth was opened. And what did he do? He continued where he left off nine months earlier. He was pre- praising God. I'm telling you, it's a beautiful story. John the baptizer, the son of Zechariah, and Elizabeth was conceived by a miracle, announced by the, by the archangel Gabriel, filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke one forty one talks about the babe leaping, but Luke 1.15 clearly says, he was filled with the spirit of God before he was even born. He was electrifying. What did his garment consist of? Matthew 3:4. Camel's hair, he ate locusts and wild honey. That was so alarming that the spirit of God and that was Jesus speaking in Matthew 3:4 decided to give that to us. That John the Baptizer wore camel's hair, ate locusts, and wild honey. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is approaching the crowds. He's addressing them and he says he asks three times this rhetorical question, the same question all three times: What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind, meaning a person of little faith. <laughs> no. What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A man clothed in soft garment? Why, those who have soft clothing live in king's houses. Jesus continued, What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he whom the Lord said, I will send my messenger before you to prepare the way before you. Then Jesus added, I tell you, among those born of women, there has risen none greater than John the baptizer. And then he adds a beautiful text that we can preach on later. You can in class sometime. But the least in the kingdom of heaven Is greater than he. It's a beautiful closure. Among those born of women, there has risen none greater than John the Baptizer. I'm telling you, church, this man, 2,000 years ago, had the charisma and the credentials to claim number one. He, well, there we go, he had the substance not just the charisma, John the baptizer had the substance. I'm telling you, he would fit well in today's society. Why? Because he always preached a social justice. He demanded that the tax collectors be honest. He demanded that the soldiers be merciful. He demanded that King Herod repent and return his his brother's wife Herodias. He had the charisma. He had ...substance, and he had the success. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 3, 5. All of Jerusalem and the regions around Judea were baptized by John. Not Jesus in this text, but but, Matthew. Matthew. All of Jerusalem. Now, what would that include? That's that's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, perhaps the Phoenician cities on the western side, on the Mediterranean, Edomia in the south, and all the regions just east of the River Jordan. It was a large area. You want to know how many Is all were baptized by John? Everything that I've read when it comes to any sort of scholarship... Archaeology, historians, uh, New Testament scholars, they all have concluded that John the Baptist baptized approximately 300,000 people. 300,000, not his team. He baptized 300,000. If he were alive today in Nashville or anywhere in the world, You think that would be a mega church or what? 300,000. He had the charisma to be number one. He had the substance to be number one. He had the success to be number one. Then why in the world did he clearly, without any doubt, choose to decrease? Well, I think... I know he heard the first chair. Or in John's own words, John chapter 1, 34, 36, John tells his disciples, I have seen and I bear witness that he is the Son of God. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the words of the apostle Paul that we discussed several weeks ago, he is Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him and through him all things were created. He is the head of the body, the church. In him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Colossians 1. That's why John, without a doubt, wanted to take a step back. Wouldn't you? Of course you would. We do. That's why every word that is beautiful from the pulpit or or the classroom, anytime people are listening, if it's beautiful music, it's not coming from us. It's coming from the first chair. I want to read a a text for you. We're not going to preach on this right now, but I I do think it really helps me sum up. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I could have also gone to Romans 12. And I'm going to pick these verses. I'm going to start with verses 4 through 7. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in everyone to each Is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verses 14 following For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less. A part of the body if the whole body listen carefully if the whole body were an eye where would be the hearing if the whole body were an ear where would be the sense of smell and then notice how Paul closes in verses 21 and 22 the eye cannot say to the hand I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet I have no need of you on the contrary And this is the point that we need to really memorize. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. That's every one of you in the pew, listening from home. It's every person God has called to the Antioch family, school teachers, pew packers, custodial work, shepherds, family ministry leaders, preachers—the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, tell me the truth. I wasn't going to say this. It's—it's it's a little crude but I think it really communicates, and I believe it. And I believe I speak the words of the Lord. On any given Sunday, would you rather have the sermon stopped or all of our toilets stopped? With 500 people here for three hours... Hearing the words of God in all kinds of ways, hearing the words of God as you walk the corridors, as you talk in the foyer, as you hear, as we sing and worship. Would you really rather have my 25 minutes or Patterson's or Chuck's or Andrew's or anybody, would you rather have me stop or all of the toilets? If it sounds self-deprecating, that is, man, you've missed the point. The point is, is that we are the body of Christ. And only Christ sits in the first chair. No one else. He is the head of the body, the church. You know, there are three Christian symbols that are ancient. Ancient. They They date back two millennia. And the reason we have these three, especially the first two, these three symbols is because Christianity for the first 300 years, at least until Constantine in AD 312, was was a persecuted religion. I mean, they were not only persecuted, they were martyred for their faith. And so as they walked the streets of Rome or Corinth or even Jerusalem, uh, maybe especially Jerusalem or, or Antioch of Syria, no matter where they were, By the way, all three of these symbols are replete in the on the walls of the catacombs in Rome. In fact, that third symbol is is an image taken from the Roman catacombs. And so they would see somebody. I would see Joe David on the street, and I would wonder by his actions in his words: do you belong to Jesus Christ? And so I might with my foot, you know, put a little cross in the sand. It wasn't that obvious, it's obvious today. Trust me, in the Roman world, crosses were everywhere. They were commonplace. Somebody might have thought, "Man, are you wishing he would die or something?" You know. But I'd put that cross, or I might draw the fish, the ichthus, I C H T H U R Y S, happens to be a Greek word meaning fish. And the early Christians caught on real early that each of the letters—it's an acronym—Jesus, Christos. Theos, chwias, soter, I-C-H-T-H-Y-S. And it means Jesus, Christ, God, Son, Savior. And so they might draw a fish or something. The ship was really on the catacomb walls because the ship always symbolized the body, the church. And the and the this nautical language came from the Gospels and came from all the sermons they would hear and from all the writings by the end of the first century everything had been written the Apostle John finished his work in the 90s so by the early second century these were these the Word of God was beginning to move around in its parchments and these autographed you know not manuscripts these were the autographs and so this was, this was this was Jesus. How many times do we read in the Gospels that whenever Jesus was in the boat with the disciples, that either the the storm calmed, or it soon after calmed because he enforced it. Such the point that they were making is Hebrews two ten. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Jesus is the captain of our faith, Hebrews 12.2. I recently, and some of you are with me, have heard this used as an analogy for the body of Christ. It is a good analogy, providing that it's interpreted biblically. And the captain of the Antioch ship is Christ. We all have different roles and callings. Christ is the head? I find it so comforting to know that. It really is a comfort for me, and I know it's a comfort for you too. Because if you've known me long enough, and you have, you see every every uh, chink in whatever armor I have, and I see your chinks as well. We're all saved by God's grace. We all have our own issues. And we all strive to be like him, the captain, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. If, th- th- there are two things I would like for you to remember. from These are the takeaways, and I trust that it is the Spirit of God telling me these are the takeaways. We were established in 1892 as a congregation here in this area. That's 129 years ago. <laughs> they're all dead, by the way. All of the beautiful Christians who lived in 1892, all of the little newborn babies, they're gone. We have seen preachers come and go, elders come and go, song leaders come and go, Christians come and go, lived beautiful lives, shared the gospel of Christ, took their last breath, and here we are today. I want to remind us that God did God never called the Antioch Church of Christ to be a mega church. For that matter, God hasn't called any church family to be a mega church. He hasn't called the Antioch church to be a large church. He hasn't called the Antioch church to be a medium-sized church. And he hasn't called the Antioch church to be a small church. He's called the Antioch church to be a faithful church. That's his only calling worldwide for his people to be faithful. And through their faithfulness, if God chooses... To make them a mega church, a mega family, great or small, has nothing to do with the people. And if it does, there's something arise somewhere. If, if it's, if it's the pulpit that somehow makes cause for 50,000 people to come, there's something wrong with that. If it's Christ, there's something glorious about it. That's the first takeaway. God has called us to be faithful. And here's the second takeaway. There has been such beautiful music. I'm sure over the last 130 years, I know the last 15 because I've been here. When this community hears beautiful music coming from this family, be assured they're listening to the first chair. Rededicate There's always moments to rededicate. Every day is a rededication. Rededicate your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and the Son of Almighty God. Pray with us as we stand and we sing. Thank you.